Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we ask, God, that as we open up to 1 Samuel chapter 28, that you would speak to us through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. In chapter 27, through the first two verses of chapter 28, there's this dilemma that David is faced with. He was with the enemy of Israel, the Philistines, and he was expected now to march with the Philistines into battle against his own people, whom he was supposed to be king of. And so we're in chapter 28, we're going to see Saul's problem here. We're going to see how Saul was without the word of God, where God wouldn't answer him. And this was the night right before a huge battle between Israel and the Philistines. And what we'll see here is is this huge crisis in Saul's life where he was cut off with communication, with communion with God. And we'll see what desperation makes people do in their search for hope, in their search for guidance, in their search for direction, and how desperation, it, it turns people to practically anything. And that's what we'll see happen to Saul. And what the author is doing here is he's putting together these two stories side by side so we can compare them. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to compare these dilemmas as we go through this message. So starting in verse 3, chapter 28. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him, and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. What was Saul's big problem? Well, God wasn't answering him. And none of the normal ways in which Saul might have received a word from God, none of those things worked. And, and Saul was, was desperate. He was desperate for guidance. He was desperate for direction. See, he, he was the king. And so he had this major responsibility of a country. But he had no direction on the eve of a major battle. And since Saul doesn't hear from the word of God, he seeks out a medium. He seeks out a necromancer. And if you don't know what a necromancer is, it's someone who contacts the dead, who who brings up the dead so that you can talk to them. Now, besides God not answering him, why else was Saul so desperate? Because, you know, there, there have been many battles before between the Israelites and the Philistines. So what's the big deal this time? What what was the big deal about this particular battle? He's fought against the Philistines without God before, right? Remember when he almost had David right in his grasp, but then he had to turn around and fight the Philistines? It doesn't mention anything about God being there all of a sudden with him. God already had left him. So he's, he's done this before. So what's different this time? Well, this time it was different because this time what the Philistines did was they cut Israel right in half or they cut it in two. So the Philistines were encamped at Shunem, southwest of the Sea of Galilee. And this position cut Saul off from his northern army, from his northern tribes. Okay, so Saul had to win at Shunem if he was going to unite his forces to battle. Okay, right now his forces are divided. So this is do or die. This is for all the marbles. And so he's desperate. He needs to seek inquiry from the Lord for direction. And it was customary to do that. But he really wants some answers and God wasn't answering him. Saul was without God. So what did he do? Verse 7. 
Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. A few interesting things here. One is in verse 7. We're told that these mediums and these necromancers, they faced a death sentence, yet Saul's servants knew exactly where to find one. Interesting, huh? And in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 9 through 22, necromancy was a a clearly prohibited practice. So, So Saul made it illegal to seek guidance from these mediums and these necromancers, but here he is doing it. Another interesting thing is the location of Endor. Now, Shunem is where the Philistines were. Now, if you go down a little bit more, that's where Saul's camp was at Gilboa. So, Saul had to go through Shunem to go to Endor to seek this medium. He had to dodge the spies. He had to go through all, this, all these problems going through here and go, dodging all the scouts and disguising himself, going out at night to make his way to Endor. So, you see how desperate... You see how desperate Saul was that he would take this risk, that they would take out the king, and that's, that's it. But he was willing to do this. This is how desperate Saul was. And so this woman knew the penalty of acting or practicing as a medium or a necromancer, and this was a capital offense. She can be sentenced to death for doing this. And so she thinks it's a trap in verse 9, which brings up the next interesting thing, that Saul swore by the name of the Lord. Saul swore to her that she would be safe, that there would be no punishment to come upon her for doing something that God was opposed to, something that is against God's will in verse 10. Now, do some of us do this? Do we play this role where where we're telling people that what they're doing is okay? That their thought processes are okay and, and their practices are okay? And are we playing the role of God and saying that, oh, don't worry, God's not going to punish you for that? When the Bible, God's word, clearly tells us otherwise. Verse 11. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. 
Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Freaky, eh? Here's a guy cut off from God, which was this cumulative result of his pattern of rebellion. But let's address the obvious question we probably all have. What the heck is with this necromancy stuff? Right? Like, what is this summoning Samuel from the dead by this lady? What's, what's this all about? This is Christianity? What's this? And while we have a whole bunch of questions regarding this stuff, we're not going to get them all addressed because the goal of the text is not to answer all of your questions of curiosity. Let's just get that out there. What we do know is that this practice was prohibited by God in Deuteronomy chapter 18. And before anyone gets too critical of the Israelites saying like, it's in there, why would they do that? What? Aren't we guilty of practicing things that God has prohibited from us as well? Don't we do that? Right? Sad to say, but God's word doesn't stop us from doing certain things either, right? And where we choose to do things against the Lord, even though we know it's against His word. And just because things are prohibited in Scripture doesn't mean that people stop doing them. So is this stuff just like a bunch of hocus pocus? Like, well, what is this stuff? I don't think it is. And some scholars would propose that this woman was a fake. And the reason they propose that is because in verse 12, she cried out with a loud voice. That she, she never saw the dead before. That she was just kind of faking it before and just saying these things. And, and when she actually saw someone from the dead, that freaked her out. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. That's just what some scholars propose. And maybe it was this sudden revelation to her that it was King Saul. And who would want to bring up Samuel. Because who else would want to summon Samuel on the eve of this big battle except for Saul? And I don't really know. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. But, but I don't think this woman was faking her stuff or that necromancy is fake. I don't think that it is. And, and the parts with Samuel in them, they're, they're pretty descriptive. And the message from Samuel is a pretty solemn one. I mean, if this is all fake, wouldn't she be like your typical fortune teller and just saying like, oh yeah, I see in your future a career change. And oh, you're going to be so successful and you'll win. I mean, wouldn't it, wouldn't it paint a beautiful picture like most of them do rather than a reality? So you'll notice that by reading Deuteronomy chapter 18, it doesn't say that necromancy is useless or that it doesn't work or that it's not real. What it does say is that it's an abomination to God. And the scriptures are telling us that it is real. But it's telling us to, to not do it because it's wicked, that it's pagan. It's idolatrous. It's idolatrous in that God is going to provide His word his direction to us through His prophets. So don't look at other places for that stuff. That's idolatry. And that's in the latter part of Deuteronomy chapter 18. So God tells us not to do this pagan stuff. What are we going to do when we do do this pagan stuff? What happens when this stuff happens? Well, we're telling God that what He provides to us just isn't enough. What He's giving us isn't enough. Him giving His Word to us through the prophets is not enough. And we want more. We want more guidance. We want more direction. And that's the problem with our churches today is that we always want more. We want more. It's not enough that we have the Word of God. 
We want more. We want more experiences. We want more flair. We want, we want now. We want guidance and direction now. We want more. And maybe that's just a pattern of idolatry. And just because God allowed something doesn't mean that He approved of it. And sometimes He permits, but He doesn't necessarily approve. And Scripture clearly tells us that He does not approve of this practice. And just because something is reported of happening in the Bible, it doesn't justify it being done. So, what does this sad account have to teach us today? Several things, a few things, and I'd like to point out just a few of them by comparing this dilemma that David had in chapter 27 that we studied last week and the dilemma that Saul has today in chapter 28. Now first, ask yourself, is there anything worse than being in a place where you have no communion with God? No communication with God. Is there anything worse? Where you are completely abandoned by God. Now isn't that hell? That's hell. And you think David had trouble, which he did. He had big trouble, but Saul's is much worse than David's. See, David was caught in this pickle in chapter 27, right? He was invited to march into battle with the Philistines, with Achish, the king there. And that would mean that if he did that, he would be a traitor. He would be betraying his own people. So being a king, forget about it. Not going to happen. And so he also couldn't turn against Achish either. Because if he did that, then he'd have King Achish of Philistia and Saul, king of Israel, against him. He couldn't do that either. So he's in a really bad place. But not as bad as Saul. Now look at, Saul, look at what Saul said in verse 15. I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more. The most hopeless Misery in all of life is to be abandoned by God. See, he once had this communion with God. He once had this communication with God, but no more. God has turned from him. And Saul tried to reach to Samuel through a necromancer, which was this desperate measure. And you look at verse 18, at what Samuel points Saul to in verse 18. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out with his fierce wrath against Amalek, Therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. You did not obey the voice of the Lord. What was Samuel referring to? He was referring back to chapter 13. Right? When Saul showed his true colors, when he showed his true self, by not waiting for Samuel to come offer the peace offering, rather he took it into his own hands and he did it himself. So when the rubber meets the road, Saul was going to do what he wanted to do. He was going to execute the decree as a king, because he was king over himself as well, rather than the word of God through his prophet, because he received clear instruction that he was to wait. See, when things counted, Saul was going to submit to himself rather to God's word through the prophet. That he would rather go with himself and what he wanted in life rather than submitting his life to God and what God wanted. Then in chapter 15, God gave Saul another opportunity. He told him to go wipe out the Amalekites. Now most people would say that that's a terrible thing. How can God do that? How can God want to wipe out the Amalekites? That's, that's terrible. And no one said it was nice. It is a terrible thing. No one's saying that it's not. 
It's a terrible thing and it's not nice. And some people may have a hard time with why God would order such a thing. But we have to understand 1 Samuel chapter 15 in light of Exodus chapter 17 and Deuteronomy chapter 25, which tells us what the Amalekites did and why God ordered this. What did they do? Well, when Israel was coming out of Egypt, there were these people that were having a hard time keeping up. Right, the elderly, the sick, or or for whatever reasons, these groups who couldn't keep up with the with the masses, who were just too tired or weak or ill, and these weaker groups would fall back, and the Amalekites would wait for them, and they would just prey upon them and wait and wait for the separation to be more and more and more, and then when the weak group was just falling way behind, where the other group couldn't come back to help them, then they would attack from behind, and they would just butcher them, massacre, wipe them entirely out. These weak people that are just coming out of Egypt, that that just made it out of there from Pharaoh and and them chasing him. Now that's why Israel fought back in Exodus chapter 17. That's why they fought Amalek. Then in Deuteronomy chapter 25, the Lord told Moses that when Israel gets into the land and when you guys get settled there, take just vengeance against the Amalekites. Take just vengeance for what they did. And the Amalekites went and they butchered God's people whom He just redeemed out of Egypt. And it's not a good thing to go after God's people. You're going to pay. Sooner or later, you're going to pay. You just don't touch God's people thinking that you're going to get away with it forever. You're not. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul was to execute God's just judgment on the Amalekites for the crimes that they committed. And it wasn't nice. It was terrible, but it was according to the Scriptures. It was according to justice. But Saul didn't listen to Samuel when he was physically alive back then. And he modified God's plans and he, and he wanted to please the people. And Samuel called him on it. Samuel called him on his disobedience, on his lack of submission, on his stubbornness, on his rebellion, on him rejecting God's Word. So then Saul was rejected. And Saul continued to reject God. And you're like, how? how? How did he do that? Well, he knew David was to be the chosen king. And yet he continued to resist that. Right? He started to try to kill David. He threw spears at him. He went after him. And he did it with great persistence. Everything he heard about David, he was there to try to hunt him down. And Saul simply just didn't listen to God. And it all boils down to this. If we despise God's Word, if we despise God's instruction to us, can we really blame God for taking that Word away? Saul said, God has turned away from me and answers me no more. If we keep refusing to submit to His Word, if we keep refusing to submit our life to God, if we are persistent in our resistance... Is it all that surprising to know that God can take that away from us? I mean, doesn't this happen? I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen when I've shared the gospel for years with people. When Katie's grandfather was in hospice care, I visited him every day. Every day for several weeks. The day that he went into hospice care, I was in the ambulance to bring him there. I love that guy. I really, really love that guy. I took him as my own grandfather because I didn't have my own grandfathers anymore. And so before Katie and I were even married, he lived up in Sacramento at the time, I would drive out there 
and, and visit him and have meals with him and just hang out and stuff like that. This guy, I mean, he, Katie and I were just dating. There was no commitment there. And so I used to call him pretty regularly also. And, and so when we got married and, and he used to want to always go to Chinese buffet. And um, ah, that guy really loved Chinese buffet. And um, I, I initially thought that he was just trying to relate to me. Like, oh, Chinese buffet. Come on, let's go. And so, but no, he really liked it. I found out, no, that's what he really does. He likes Chinese. So, and we had these really good conversations and, and some of them spiritual in nature. And then less than a year ago, he ended up in hospice care and they transferred him to Oakland so he'd be closer to family. And it was right by the Kaiser in Oakland. So that's where I would go study. Whenever I worked and I didn't have to be in the office to work, that's where I was. I just camped out there hours at a time. And I was there doing my study at his bedside and I'd share the gospel with him whenever I had the chance to, whenever I I prayed and it was open, I did it. And he knew what I did at work. He knew I was a pastor. He knew I was studying the scriptures there. I mean, it's open. The Bible's open right there. And so I remember this conversation we had just one week before he died. And I asked him, Grandpa, when when are you going to accept Jesus into your life? And he told me, I I can't. And I was like, why not? And he told me, it's too late. And I said, it's not too late. It's never too late. It's only too late when you're dead. And you're not dead yet. And, and he told me, I just can't. And he acknowledged to me that he was a sinner. He acknowledged to me that he was with sin. But he couldn't repent. And, and that wasn't the first time the gospel was shared with him too. Because over the years, every time I had an opportunity, I would share with him. And so, you see, with the offer of the gospel, we we need to be careful because there's such a thing as a hardening. A hardening of your heart, a hardening of your mind that brings people to a place where they know that they need to repent, but they can't. And there's no misery that is as hopeless as being abandoned by God. And I don't know if Grandpa ever made that decision before he died. The the last few days of his life, he, he really just couldn't communicate but I still shared Jesus with him. I'd get really close to his ear and I'd tell him. I'd tell him, you know, it's not too late. You can still do it. So I, I don't know. I, I hope he did and I prayed that he did, but I really don't know. And another thing that this text helps teach us to see is that our problems seem lighter when we see them in their proper context. Let me explain. We're comparing David in chapter 27 through 28, verse 2, to Saul here in chapter 28, verses 3 to the end of the chapter. And so you recall David is in Philistia, and he gets caught up in his own foolishness. And after reading chapter 27 up until chapter 28, verse 2, you wonder, how in the world is David going to get out of this mess? How is he going to get out of here? But then if you read the rest of chapter 28, you don't get an answer. Don't you find that odd? That rather than continuing on with the story of David and finding out, we're told that Samuel died and then we're told what Saul was up to. What is happening here? This is so incomplete. This is just so, what's going on here? We're told a totally different story from where we were taken when David's in the middle of his dilemma and it's building up, it's building up. It's verse 2. We don't hear what happened to David. What's going on? Where is it going to tell me what happened to David? Chapter 29. The next chapter. Now, why did the writer do this? Why did the author take us 
to David at his crossroads in chapter 27 through chapter 28, verse 2, and then take it in a totally different direction for the rest of the chapter in 28. Why did the author do that? Why is Saul's story right here, instead of continuing on with what David was up to and how his problem was going to play out? And some may think that the way that it's presented here, this is chronological, and that's just that's why the author wrote this, and that's why. And just what happened next. But it's not. This is not what happened next. Chapter 29 happened after chapter 28, verse 2. If this was written chronologically, we'd be reading chapter 27 through chapter 28, verse 2, then chapter 29, and then back to chapter 28, verse 3, through the rest of the chapter. And you're saying, Pastor Albert, how do you know? You weren't there. Right? You, you can't make that assumption. If, if that is true, why is it written like that? Well, we know this chronology problem because of geography. That's why I love maps. And you look at chapter 28, verse 4. And you'll read that Saul was going to fight the Philistines who were encamped at Shunem. Now, where is Shunem? Southwest of the Sea of Galilee, southwest of that. That's Shunem, Israelite territory. And you remember the Philistines cut Saul's army in two and separating his forces there, right? Now you look at chapter 29, verse 1. Where are they? They are in Aphek. Where is Aphek? On the coast, right? You go towards the Mediterranean if you can see Aphek there. What does that tell you? Well, Aphek's... Philistine territory. Where do you think they assembled before they went to Shunem? They had to assemble in Aphek, in their own territory. You don't assemble in enemy territory. You assemble in your own so that you can take over enemy territory, right? So they didn't assemble in Shunem. They assembled in Aphek, in their own territory, and then they ventured into Shunem. It wasn't the other way around where they went to Shunem and then they went back to Aphek. That would make no sense. Why would they do that? They already have Aphek. So when we read the Bible, we can't make these accurate evaluations without reading the parts that pertain to that story. We can't make conclusions without pulling in the other pieces. And not only do you make up these inaccurate interpretations of the Bible because they feel good to you or they make good sense to you, it's just a bad way to study the Bible. For example, to understand 1 Samuel chapter 24 more completely, you have to study chapters 25 and 26. They'll give you a lot of the answers that you're seeking in chapter 24. To understand chapter 27, you have to study chapter 28 and 29. And it would be even more helpful if the entire counsel of God was studied so that we could have a better understanding of the full counsel of God. And in chapter 27, David is with the Philistines down in Gath. You remember where Gath is? I'm going to try to do it in, in our terms in the Bay Area geography so you can get a better understanding. Let's just say Gath is Fremont, okay? Then the Philistines head up to Aphek, and we'll say that Aphek is Oakland. Okay? Not exactly the same distance, but I just want to give you the geography. And then the battle will take place in Shunem. Let's say San Ramon. And a good distance northeast from Fremont, though, right? San Ramon is a good distance there. So, so do you get the proper sequence here in terms of just our own geography with Fremont, San Ramon, and Oakland? And in chapter 27, we're told of something that happened in Fremont. 
Then we're told of something that happened in San Ramon. And then we're taken to Oakland in chapter 29. When it wouldn't make sense that way if it was chronological. Because it would be more like Fremont, Oakland, San Ramon. But that's the chronology of it. Now, if we're being told of the time sequence of events, we would start in Fremont, right? We would go to Oakland. And then we would fight in San Ramon. Because that's where all the gangs are. But we're not. We're told Fremont. San Ramon, and then Oakland. Why? Because the best is last. Right? Oakland. No. No. So, so now that we know that it's not chronological, we have to ask ourselves what the author's purpose was in writing it this way. Why did the author write it like this? Why is the story of, about David divided like this, telling us about David, and this telling us this weird thing about talking to the dead story about Saul without wrapping up David's problem? Why? Why? Because it's important. That's why. When you're watching a television show, have you ever had this thing come up where a breaking news story interrupts your program? We interrupt this program to bring you a special news bulletin. Right? The super volcano in Long Valley, California has erupted. Did you know there was a super volcano in California? I had no idea until I got this little fascination about super volcanoes. It's just 200 miles from us. It hasn't erupted, I'm just saying. But why would something like that break into our program? Because that's important. That's urgent. That's our water supply. That's a lot of stuff. That's air traffic. That's a lot of stuff. And so it is with the story in 1 Samuel chapter 28. And so you see what the author is trying to do here? Right? The author gets to chapter 28, verse 2, and then he's going into verse 3, and you're thinking, hey, we're going to get what David's going to do next. We're going to be told, but no, it switches to Saul. The author is telling us, don't worry about David. There's something really urgent, really important for you to understand here, for you to get. There's a breaking news story here for us to take a look at Saul and the mess that he's in. And so you see what the author is doing here? See, he put David's dilemma before us in chapter 27 through chapter 28, verse 2. And so what is David's dilemma? David's dilemma, he's with the enemies, the Philistines. And so how in the world is he going to get out of fighting against Israel, his own people, and, and not betray his own people? And so David was faced with fighting with his enemy against his own country. And he's stuck in this place because maybe he won't be king. But the author is saying, don't worry about that. Take a look at Saul. Because Saul has it a lot worse. And you're saying, how so? Saul is without the word of God. He's without any word from God. It's the eve of the most important battle of his entire life. And there's no direction from God. See, God has turned away from him. So who's in a worse situation? How to deal with a really, really difficult situation where you see no way out of it? Or how to deal with the absence of God? And so you can apply that to yourself. You see how our problems seem lighter when we see them in the proper context? Because no matter what you're going through, you still have God. And I'm not meaning that you know, someone has it worse than you, so, so, you know, take inventory. Someone has it worse. I'm not meaning it like that at all. I'm not meaning to say like, oh, somebody has it worse than you do, which is probably true, but that's not what I mean. 
What I'm trying to get at is that there's this comfort of knowing that God is behind you no matter what, no matter how deep of a mess you're in, no matter how much of a conflict you're in, when you think that there's no way out for you, you still have God, that no matter what you're going through, you still have Him. And we might be going through a really serious time, a really tough time, a time of duress where we're unjustly treated, where we have serious problems with our family or our health or our finances, where we've suffered a really great loss. But there's something more tragic than all those things. As a believer in Jesus, for all the tribulations that we face, for all the duress that we suffer, for all the pressures we come under, for all our failures, for all our disappointments, for all our foolishness, for all of our losses for all of the betrayals, for all that junk in our life. But we have access to God's throne of grace through Jesus. So you see what we have. You see the hope that we have. You look at what we have in light of Saul, who was abandoned by God. And nothing can be that bad as to be in a position like Saul, who was without a word from God. And the third thing I'd like to point out in comparing David's dilemma in chapter 27 to Saul's dilemma in chapter 28 is this. Spiritual desperation can be misguided. It can be misdirected. And you look at when Samuel asked Saul why he had him raised up in verse 15. Why did Saul have the necromancer bring Samuel up? It's in the last part of verse 15. I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. See what Saul was doing? Saul was seeking guidance, not out of love for God, but out of fear of making mistakes. Saul sought information as to a problem he had, specifically fighting the Philistines, but there was this much larger issue at hand than him getting guidance. Like, why was he cut off from fellowship from God? Isn't that a bigger issue? It's so important to be right in a decision compared to being right with God? Is it? Is it that important to be right in your decision making and receiving guidance and receiving information and having all that information? But what if you're just not right with God? What's more important? Your heart needs to be right with God. You can have all the information you want, but it doesn't matter if you don't have Him. And so we see how when we're desperate, we can look for the wrong things. How we can fall into seeking something that's less from our desperation. And Saul here was really desperate. You saw what he did. He went through Shunem to get to Endor to seek this lady. He was really desperate. And what did it produce? You look at verse 19. The Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. See, knowing the future ahead of time isn't always advantageous. It's not always an advantage. You've just been told you're going to die. What good is that? You're going to lose everything. Right? Having all the information you seek, that you want, isn't always a benefit, especially when it's not from God. God will give you something that's beneficial, but when you go seek it out on your own, you're dead. What good is it to us to know what's going to happen tomorrow if God isn't the one that gave us the news? See, there's a reason He didn't tell you what you want to know. There's a reason to it. 
Right? Perhaps it's to prevent us from a likelihood that we'll end up abusing that foreknowledge. Or that it can drive us to hopelessness and despair because it's just too much for us to take in at that time and there's some growing that we need to do before we reach that point. But you see what Saul was after. He was after information. He was after information about a battle when he should have been concerned with what Samuel said to him in verse 16. Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? You should be asking somebody else, Samuel is saying. Not me. And instead of gaining more information about yourself, which we tend to like to do, just hoard information, how about worrying about whether you have the Lord's presence with you? If you are right with God, rather than just trying to get more information for your life. And before you try to get that information to sort things out in your life that you think will be helpful to you, you have to be with Him. You have to have Him. You can't get things right on your own. You need God. Now some of you may believe that you're in a place like Saul, where you think that God has cut you off from Him, and you're doomed to God's silence. How do we know if we're in Saul's position? Because some of us may feel like that. Some of you may think that a true believer would never feel that way. If you're a true believer, you would never think that. Really? Because you're probably sitting next to one right now. It does happen. And there may be a believer here today who feels God is completely silent to you because you've been under some affliction for so long that it seems that God is absent from your life. Because you've just been enduring this thing years and, and there's no answer. Or because some decision that you made before, or some decision that you didn't make, that you think that God is absent from you and, and it caused God to forget about you, where you feel you're doomed. And I want to tell you that you're not alone if you're in this place. You're not alone. Right? You, you read the prayers in the Bible, recorded in the Bible. You read the Psalms. Take a look at this one. Psalms chapter 13, verse 1. This is David himself. A Psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? It happens to believers. When a believer feels or senses that he or she has been forsaken by God or cut off from God, what do they do? What do you do when you're in this position? Do you run to a horoscope? Do you run to tarot cards? Do you run to a palm reader? Do you turn to necromancy? What does a genuine believer do? What do genuine believers do in the Lord when they feel they are forsaken by God and that God has cast them off? And I'll tell you, you go right back to God. You don't go other places. You go right back to God, to the God whom you feel has forsaken you, and you tell Him. Right? You look at Psalms chapter 13, verse 1. That's what he did. That's what David did. Look at David. David didn't go anywhere else because there's nowhere else to go. You go right back to God. He didn't go looking for something else. He went right back to God, whom he felt wasn't answering him, whom he felt forgot about him. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Why did David do this? The same reason as any other genuine believer does this, because there's nowhere else to go. Where else are you going to go? 
You can't get any higher. God doesn't have a manager or a supervisor or a board. You can't go any higher. He has no one he reports to. That's, you have to go back to him. And in David's desperation, he went back to God. He didn't look anywhere else. There is nowhere else. And even though he felt forgotten and ignored, he went back to the true God. That's one way you can see the difference between David and Saul. You, you look at where they turn to in times of spiritual desperation. You see how spiritual desperation can be misguided if you don't go to the right place? See, Saul was more concerned about guidance than he was about the guide. And for David, he just goes right back to the guide. Even though you're forgetting me and you turn your face, that's where I'm going. I mean, where else can I go? Verse 20. Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand, and I have listened to what you have said to me. Now therefore you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants together with the woman urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it, and she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. There's a hint of the gospel here in verses 20 through 25. No way. This seems so dark. But there's a light here that's flickering in all this darkness. And you notice that after this whole seance thing that they did, that the woman provided this meal that was fit for a king. That the people around Saul, they were doing what they could for someone who was facing this disaster. Saul was going to lose his kingdom. He was going to lose his life. He was going to lose his family. His sons were going to die with him in battle. And these people were trying to make him as comfortable as possible. Yet you see this despair and this hopelessness at the very end of verse 25, right? Because it says, Then they arose and went away that night. To what? It's hopeless. God's not there. They got up and left without any hope. So we can see all this stuff here that we can do as people to provide comfort and, and provide all these nice things for people and, and serve people and, and provide all these good things for people. But what people really need in this community, in our church, is God. We can provide a feast fit for a king. We can provide answers. We can provide information. We can provide services. But if we don't provide God, does it really make that big of a difference? they still get up and leave into the night without any hope. We need to present Jesus. We need to present God. Not just doing good things. Now, this eating of a Last Supper and going out into the night, does it remind you of another individual who was really religious like Saul? One who preached Christ and he hung out with Jesus for a few years as a disciple? In John chapter 13, verse 30, Judas ate his last supper. He left the upper room at night. John chapter 13, verse 30. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. No hope. Indeed, it was dark, right? 
total darkness. Not just because the sun went down, but because there was a darkness of spirit. There was no hope there. And in this darkness, that's where Jesus chose to enter in. In that darkness. You look at Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 34. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Son of God walked out at Calvary into outer darkness. Jesus is the one who took that darkness that should have been mine, that that darkness, that being forsaken by God. That was mine. And what Saul experienced, what Judas experienced, being forsaken by God, Jesus took that from me, from you. He took that from many of us. And Jesus took that darkness that was supposed to be ours. He walked into that darkness for us. He took away being forsaken by God. Isn't what Jesus said like what Saul said in verse 15 of our text about being forsaken by God? God turned away from His Son. And so we see Saul's hopelessness. We see the hopelessness of Judas. A hopelessness that Jesus took, but he could actually do something about it. The question for us is, are we going to take him up on that provision of hope? On that provision of taking away that darkness, of being forsaken by God? Jesus went into the outer darkness so that we wouldn't have to. The question for us is, is have we done that with Jesus? who has overcome that outer darkness. Have you taken him up on the offer of not being forsaken by God? And if you have, you have more than Saul did. You have more than Judas did. And if you haven't, you have a decision to make. And you remember that no matter how big your problems are, there is a problem that is much worse. You can be without God, like Saul. And if you are without God right now and you hear His voice, I plead with you that you don't harden your heart toward Him. Because if you continually resist, can you really blame God from retracting? From pulling that away? Like, you don't want it. You may be risking the condition that that you will never accept Him and risk being forsaken by God. Let's pray. Lord, you are a God who speaks light out of utter darkness. And may the glory of your light from your Son, Jesus, shine from within us, even though we are full of sin. Lord, I pray for those who have heard about you, who know that Jesus has entered that outer darkness of being forsaken by you. And has allowed a communion with you so that you haven't abandoned us. I pray for those folks that don't have that relationship with you, Lord. And I pray that their heart is softened. That they would make a decision to accept you as that Savior. That they wouldn't be forsaken by God. Lord, I pray that that hope just rings really true to them. That no matter what they are going through, that if they have you, there's hope. And if they were going through something small but they don't have you... It's hopeless still. 
So God, I ask for anyone who is here that does not know you, Lord, I pray that they would come forward sometime after the service or during the week and that they would start this journey of discovering who you are, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.